Brilliant. Okay. Welcome and nice to see everybody here tonight. And uh, thank you, Kate, for inviting me along tonight. I, I am generally honoured and humbled to be here tonight with you. Uh, I come from a long way away. It's about a six-hour journey for me from deep west Wales. So let me tell you a bit about myself first. Uh, I'm married. One of my great achievements in life, I think, is staying faithfully married for 28 years. Some of you that are in marriages, you'll understand what a great challenge that is and can be. Uh, I've also reared four children. I'm very happy the way my all four of my children are progressing. My oldest boy is 21. He's in university in Cardiff. He's a great triathlon. He's, he's an Ironman athlete. I've got two girls, 19 and 18. One studying A levels, one's in college, and they both going to go into the caring profession, I believe. And my youngest girl, I think she's going to pursue similar interests to what I'm interested in, and I think they're going to pursue psychology. My youngest boy, 14, he's also a great triathlete. Um, my last conversation with him, he's avoided the conversation for a while. I'm asking him what he's going to do with his life, and he says he'd like to be a stand-up comedian. So, so we've got a great tradition in Wales, actually, of stand-up comedians. So we'll see how we'll see how that that, that goes. Uh, my work: I'm an outdoor guide. I'm a tour guide. I'm an accredited guide with Visit Wales. I love what I do. Uh, I take people on coach tours, walking tours, but I also go out into the nature. And I have a specialist work of nature connection and nature awareness. And if I say mindfulness in nature, I think you begin to understand what that work is about. You know, we go out into nature and uh, use our senses to connect with nature. But another part of my work is mental health. I've been totally freelance, self-employed in what I do now for about 10, 10 years. And it seems a bit of an odd mixture, really, a poor guide and a poor guide and mental health. And it splits about 50-50. And in my work with mental health, uh, sounds grand. I'm a lecturer with the University of South Wales. Sounds very grand. In theory, it's zero hours contract. And I just <laughs> turn up when they want, want me, and I teach mental health first, first aid. But I also, six, seven years ago, uh, I actually combined the two things together. My outdoor guiding work in nature, and my work with mental health. And you're thinking, well, how can you combine those two together? Well, I, I realized that going out in nature with people with mental health problems, has a profound, nature has a profound healing effect in people suffering with mental health problems. So I understood this, so we established a social enterprise about seven years ago, and it's called Reconnecting Nature. Uh, we work with about 100 participants, and we've had some great successes in helping people along their recovery journeys in mental health. So that explains a little bit about where where I am at the moment, but you may have seen the title of this evening's talk, and I might sort of begin to introduce, it's not always been this good, you know, I've had a good 
period for a number of years that hadn't always been this good. And I must give a little bit of a warning tonight that I will be authentic as I can and I'll speak from the heart and raw experience or some of the things I say tonight may touch a raw nerve uh, with, with, some, with some of you. So the way I'm going to do it is that we'll have about three quarters an hour. I'll try to keep the timings as best as I can. I've got six themes to go through and I've got six psalms. What I discovered in life is that the psalms really express and explain life in its fullest. From the mountain top, from the heights, right down to the deepest depths you will ever experience, expands the full spectrum of human experience. And whatever state you find yourself in life, you find a psalm which will speak to you. Whatever state in life you are. So I'm going to frame my key six themes with six psalms. But anytime anybody wants to speak to me while I'm speaking, I, I'm happy with that, or you can speak with me in the break, or speak with me after the session. I have planned to speak all evening, but I'm happy to be interrupted and, and uh, deal with any questions or any dialogue as we progress. So the first psalm is Psalm 70. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hand, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject us forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The 
clouds poured down water, the skies resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth, your thunder was shared in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Meaning. The way I want to do this is a little bit of a chronological journey, if you bear with me. I'm going to go right back into my childhood back into my youth and slowly gradually bring you up to speed where we are here today. So within Wales, you know, I had a decent family, decent upbringing, one sister, a mother and father who, who were very respectable and looked after me very well. But I sensed there was something different about myself. I, I spent a long time alone. I'd go out into the woods and I'd sit in the woods and I'd listen to the birds and I'd take an everything in nature. And it was a, it was a big thing for me. When I come home from school, I'd, I'd go up to the woods and I'd just sit and wait. And, and, that, and that was a big thing for me. And I sensed something almost sacred, a, a, anotherness, which as a young child you can't properly explain, but looking back there was something there. I enjoyed playing piano, I played, I composed music and you know, things, things were good. I was, I, I got on well in school, I had friends, so things, things were looking good. And I remember on one occasion there was a real profound connection with nature. I must have been about 13 and we went camping and we got some great valleys in Wales and some almost wilderness valleys and we were camping beside a stream and I remember it vividly. It was like the stream was so clear and so true and everything was alive and pure awareness, you know, and this came upon me when I was 13 years of age and it was a, it was a special moment which lives with me today and will live with me all my life and, and it's made a big impression upon me. But as I grew up, it was despair and delusionment stirring within. I was not easily satisfied. My fellow peers, they were happy to get money and to buy things and they seemed to be satisfying them. They were at great ambitions, they talked about doing great things in the world and I'd spend time in nature and all I began to see was destruction. I began to see, this is in the sort of mid-70s, early 70s, I began to see environmental pollution. I saw the destruction of, oncoming destruction of humanity and the environment. And all I could see were dark, dismal pictures. And I was beginning to get in a state of despair. I wanted, I was hungry. I was hungry for meaning. I was hungry for a purpose. Father, he was quite a character really. He would he would have impulses and he would act on impulses. He'd have hobbies and we'd be going from 
one thing to another. It led to an interesting life sometimes. We'd be out on the moors flying model aeroplanes. <coughs> the next couple of months later, we'd be looking at growing mushrooms and thinking about bringing a mushroom farm together. Uh, he's still alive, he's 82, he, he's a great, great man, he, he's had many times in my life he's been a rock for me. And he was, he was a miner, he was the father of a miner, and in many ways old school, and I was about 13, 14 again, and I was fascinated that my father brought home this book. He wasn't a great reader, but he brought home this book, Yoga and Meditation. I thought this was, very, this was quite unusual for my father, so uh, I took this book, I took this book to heart, and I started to read it, and I became fascinated. In this book, there were there seemed to be pointers to things that I was yearning for. So you know, those were the beginnings, really, the beginnings of of So, I entered, the older I got, I began to enter into a, a deeper despair, and I found escape. I found escape in nature, and I began to find escape in meditation. Some of the practices in this book, Yoga Meditation, I began to practice, and one was lying on the floor and then just letting yourself just sink into the floor, and I found that quite good. And I learned to concentrate on the breathing as well. So these things were, were happening with, with me, and I was growing up, I was quite a popular lad, I was a popular lad with the girls, you know, I had hair in those days, and not such a big belly, and uh, so, you know, I did have a couple of girlfriends, and there was one girlfriend in, in particular, we got very close when we were studying A-levels together, and she really was my first love. And I had this ambition, because of my connection with nature and environment, that I wanted to be an environmental educator. I wanted to study environmental sciences so I could be a professional environmentalist, and that's what I did. I had my first escape up to London when I was 18 years of age, and my girlfriend at the time, she escaped also. She went to Hammersmith Hospital uh, to train to be, to be a nurse. And I went to the University of London to study environmental sciences. Things are all right. Psalm 88. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. 
whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken away from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds? in the land of oblivion. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors, terrors, and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. escape to London and the transition from rural West Wales to busy city life was not a good one. I struggled with my studies, you know, it wasn't the most suitable course for me really, it was too scientific and I was really having a difficult time. City life really didn't fit with me. And the despair and got worse. Um, I wasn't feeling well at all. Uh, I went home for Christmas and I returned to London after Christmas to resume my studies. And there was this one occasion, I went to see my girlfriend in Hammersmith Hospital. She was in halls of residence. And there was one occasion I went to the toilet, it sounds bad, but I went to the toilet. And not only did I escape, but I become lost in a different world. Things changed for me. And it's very difficult to explain. It was like if I'd been sucked into a vacuum that I would never come out of. And I was lost in space. And I sat there for a while, and eventually I was able to bring myself back, be able to walk out of the toilet. But when I faced my girlfriend, everything had completely changed. I was in a different world. Mm -hmm. So 
So looking back, I know this is the beginnings of my psychosis, the beginnings of the formation of, of my delusions. And when I went back to college, we're talking about the early 1980s now, and if anybody can remember that, 1981, 1982, we're talking about Cold War. Uh, we're talking about Cold War activities between America and Russia. And all we ever get on the newspapers, on the media, is the threat of nuclear war. And looking back to those times, it's difficult to, to imagine. But <coughs> if we were getting leaflets through the door, protect and survive, and they were giving you information about making yourself safe in the event of nuclear war. So all we were getting through the media was this. This began to play on my mind. I really began to believe that nuclear war was imminent. I forgot about my studies. I got my rucksack. I started to fill my rucksack with fresh vegetables and fresh water. And I made it my mission to start walking around London to warn everybody and advise everybody that the, nuclear, the impending nuclear war was imminent. And to survive, you'd have to gather fresh fruit and vegetables, a bit of food, some fresh water, and just to get out of the city. And if anybody needed any help, I, I would help them to walk out of the city, just like the Pied Piper or whatever it may be. <laughs> and, and the, the, you know, these delusions now are really beginning to get a grip, grip on me, even to the point of religious delusions. And I think I'm some sort of messiah type who's going to save people from the impending doom and doom which is going to come, come, come upon us. Well, quite rightly so, my, my friends and fellow students, my girlfriend, they knew that there was something serious, seriously wrong with me. And it wasn't long before my mother and father came up and picked me up and took, took me home. And things went worse and worse at home. And it wasn't long before there was a knock at family home and outside the family home was was, uh, was an ambulance man and, and a social worker and a psychiatrist and it wasn't long before I was uh, being sent off in the ambulance to the uh, local psychiatric hospital which was about 25 miles away. So that was my first admission into a uh, psychiatric hospital. I spent about four months there and you're given in a heavy uh, dosage then of neuroleptic, uh, antipsychotic medication. If I tell you, it's just like a chemical spray jacket. It's so disabling. Uh, it, it was absolutely ter ter terrible. Uh, difficult times. I, I lose my girlfriend. She can't understand. Uh, I don't blame her for that. Uh, my friends don't understand, there's a real fear, so my, my friends are not, are not around. And when I come out of hospital, I just go home and uh, I be with my mother and father at home on this heavy medic medication. So, so things, things are not, not good. I must say also, Despite the despair, during the illness, there are real times of almost religious mania and almost points of just incredible awareness. And it's very difficult, but I would say there's almost a sense of some form of spirit, spirit, spirituality as well. It's very difficult to combine that and bring that to the same table as mental illness, but there's something in there 
which is just a peak experience. So it's not all complete darkness. So I come on and I spent about 12 months on this antipsychotic medication and I really struggled. Uh, with this, the, the, the medication is so strong, I can't pull the belt up on my trousers. I can't even shave, I've got to get somebody to shave. I couldn't play the piano. Yeah, the medic you're talking about the first tranche of antipsychotic medication, if anybody's got any experience with this, it, it, the, the side effects of it is like Parkinson's disease, and it just completely locks you. It's like a chemical straight jacket. So I give up the med medication because I can't cope, cope with this, and I begin to come back to life again. My fingers start moving, I begin to play the piano again, and I begin to feel all right again. And I think to myself, well, what's next now? And there's the yoga, the meditations up there, and I see an opportunity to go to Cardiff with this institute called this uh, institution called CIA. It's not the Central Intelligence Agency. It's the Cultural Institute of Affairs. It's an American organization, and they're involved in humanitarian developments, and it was an opportunity to train with them to go to India. So this really appealed to me after sort of all this research I'd done with the yoga meditation. So I went up to Cardiff, and I was, it was about a four-week training to, to go out to India. And I started to get some strange ideas again. This is a big house just outside Cardiff. It's January. 1982, and my mind's beginning to go again. And the master of the house walks in, into my bedroom. I have a bedroom, it's a really big, big house, a two-story house. And he walks in, into the bedroom, and I think in his pocket, he's got his hand in his pocket, I think in his pocket he's got a Luger gun. And at any moment he's going to pull out that Luger gun and shoot me. This is the year I started jumping. If anybody's been in a situation where they've completely genuinely feared for their life and believe that their life is going to end, you act. Um, my first reaction was just to run across the room and jump out of the window. It's a large house. But he could body. Although this, at times the story is dark and despairing, I just feel there's an element of being looked after at critical times and almost. Uh, part of providence sometimes in my life. If anybody can remember January 1982, it was one of the worst winters we've ever had. Snow was about five or six foot on the ground. I had a, yeah. I had a soft landing, you know. <laughs> so, I really did have a soft, a soft landing. And I returned into the house, but things were not good, and uh, it wasn't long before uh, there was a uh, Another knock at the door of the policeman, and this time it was a soldier. And at the bottom of the uh, pathway was a four wheeled army truck. And I thought to myself, my delusions have got so bad now. And I thought to myself, well, thank God, you know, they realize I'm so important now. They're sending up the army to save me on this occasion. The, the, the reality was, well, well that, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry. All right. The reality was, I was so ill that they needed to get me to hospital. And the only way they were going to get me to hospital was in a 
was in a four-wheel drive vehicle that could uh, deal with the snow at the time. So I ended up in a local psychiatric, psychiatric hospital outside of Cardiff for three or four months. And, and each of these times I get sectioned. So, you know, so I'm committed to hospital. I come back home and I'm again sectioned back in my home at hospital in St. David. So this is 1982. And this is when I first given my diagnosis of schizophrenia. I'm given this diagnosis. It's like being given a life sentence. I'm given a label. The prognosis of this illness is is diabolical. You know, it's the, I'm I'm more or less told I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. I'm going to be disabled for the rest of my life. The chances of me ever working again very very slim i'm not going to lead a normal life so i'm given this label and it's so easy for me to believe that and many many people do believe that so i'm given that in 1982. so i come out of hospital i'm back on the medication and you know i'm back in the same place with this very disabling med medication i must say something else about being in hospital in 1982. Uh, you know, you, what are the causes of serious mental illness? What are the causes of schizophrenia, bipolar? You know, you can, you can look at many different causes, uh, you know, envir environmental factors, uh, the way you're brought up in, in a family, trauma, tragedy in, in your life. But scientists have also proven that there is some form of family connection, some form of genetic connection also. I tell you, in 1982, I was in psychiatric hospital. I was on the uh, male side, my mother, the trauma of me being in hospital had triggered my mother, and she was on the female side. So we were both in hospital together, and then we used to meet in the canteen in the middle and share our meals three times or two times a day then. That just gives you a little bit more insight. And there was another occasion when I was in hospital in 1982, and two of the night nurses, they came up to me, and they wanted to administer uh, the medication. And the way it was administered, administered it, was a it, it was an injection which went into your backside, and if you refused that, you were forcibly given it. So you put on the deck and forcibly administered the neuroleptic injection. On this occasion, when the two nurses were coming up, I actually thought this time it was a lethal injection. I really believed that when they were injecting this time, I was going to, I was going to die, they were going to kill me, and this was the lethal injection. So the same as before, I was out to save my life. Are you talking, this building had metal frames, you're talking about what would you would call perhaps anti-suicide uh, frames, it's a high hospital, second floor. I was very, very thin then, I mean, I must have been down to about nine, nine and a half stone. Um, how I did it, I will never know, but I went across the room and I kicked that window in and I managed to squeeze out of the window and stand on the ledge. No, you're absolutely fine. I, I'm at peace with all of this, to be honest with you. So it doesn't, you know, there's no problem at all. You know, I've looked, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable sharing all of this. No problem at all. And I stood on the ledge, and again, it was like providence on my side again, because in front of me was a, a 
porch in front of Frank Larson, so it was a little jump on the ledge on top of the porch. Providence turns up again, running down the lane towards the hospital ward, was a chap from the school I was at, or was trained to be a psychiatric nurse. He looked up at me, he said, Andrew, stay there. In these days, he said, wait there. In these days, he talked about health and safety and risk, risk assessments. On that night, he was like this, stay there. And he ran up, he looked up at the porch, now jump. And, he, <laughs> and I jumped and he actually caught me. He was a big lad. He, 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 he was a rugby player, he caught me, and he was working on the uh, secure ward that night. He took me up to the secure ward. From then on, for a couple of weeks, I was on the locking key. I even went into my own room under lock. But before I went into my own room, I had to get my ankle patched up while I kicked in the window with the glass. Because to this day, I've got about five or six stitches on my ankle, just as a whirlpool where I actually went through that window that, that night. So, it's not good. The medication again is so disabling, I decide after about 18 months to give up. 12 months, the delusions start coming back again, my mind starts playing tricks again with me, talking 1985. I go into the hospital and I go back on the medication, this is my fourth admittance now. I end up spending, you know, the best part of a year of my life now in total in this academic hospital. And I go into the deep, deepest, darkest pit you could ever wish for. I go into a black hole, a black tunnel, and all I want is out of this life. I cannot live with this life anymore. I want out. And I reflect on this for a long time, 18 months, two years. But despite that dark tunnel, there is just there's a little speck of light. Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness on the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. 
for they had rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labour. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the deepest gloom and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works with songs of joy. Turning. So I'm in this deep, dark hole. I can't live with the medication, but I'm now realizing I can't live without the medication. I don't know where to turn to. There's a little light, there's a tiny speck of light in this dark tunnel. And that speck of light begins to show itself. It begins to show itself first in a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist called Dr. Guru. <laughs> the psychiatrist was called Dr. Guru. He was an Indian psychiatrist. We didn't talk about meditation or the great wonders of the universe or the spiritual realms. We talked about very practical, down-to-earth matters. Most importantly, we talked about meditation. Now, up until that point, I had very little hope. I was given this label of schizophrenia and I thought I'd have this label for life and and that was it, you know, I'm a condemned man and, you know, it's going to be difficult for the rest of my life. But Dr. Poole, gets through to me and it's in his eyes, he looks at me in his eyes and I, he gives hope to me, but what he gives to me is trust. He's, he got over to me and said, look, he said, first of all, you've got to accept you're very young. He convinced me of that began to accept that, that I was very ill. And then he said, but there is some hope. He said, you know, this is a very serious illness. He said, but I've known people and I've worked with people who there is help. But you must trust me, you must listen to me. You can't be making decisions on your own about medication. You've just got to follow what I say. That's what I did. He got through to me. I listened to him. And I followed his, followed his advice on medication. And I didn't like the medication. And whenever I see him, I tell him about the side effects. 
And as the years went on, you know, I'd tell him, and he'd say, well, they're doing very well, stay on this medication. But I'd go back another time, and he'd say, yeah, time's right, we'll reduce the medication. So, what's the first speck of life was Dr. Guru. And there's something else. I'm not trying to escape anymore. I'm beginning to accept things. And I guess in that time when I met Dr. Guru, I escaped. I couldn't imagine this or take any sense from what I'm saying here, but I escaped as far away from myself as I could. Must the turning come back to myself. I reached that point of complete disconnection and the alienation. And now there was a slow turning back to myself. The other aspect of like coming another unexpected way. There's one thing if you ever go into hospital and you go through a serious mental illness, a big thing is fellow sufferers. The fellow sufferers, they understand you and you understand them. You're comfortable with them. They're comfortable with you. They're gold. You know, it's, it's a real strength. Peer support is a huge strength. And whenever I went into hospital, on three occasions at St. David's Hospital, there were two other boys, they were the men now, but you know, they were there and we were always in together at the same time. And we built up, we built up a good relationship. And they seemed to be triggered at the same time as I did. We'd go wrong in cycles. And it was always the beginning of January when I'd start going down and I'd be triggered into uh, the serious bouts of mental illness. So there was one weekend, I used to go up and see him. He lived about 25 miles away in Carmarthen, and I'd go up and see him. And uh, I'd spend the night with him, and perhaps not a good thing, but we go down to the pub and have two or three pints. Not a good thing to mix alcohol and medication, but we did. It was, it was a re any form of relief was good, so we did that. And I came back, and in walked into the room was a woman, a girl, and she started talking to me. Now this was unusual because I, I couldn't talk. To, I had difficulty talking with girls, and you know I. I've had a relationship since, since I was in London with my first girlfriend, so you know, I hadn't really connected with girls for years. And she started talking with me, and we started talking on similar things. And I thought, this is a bit strange. There's a girl who's showing interest in me and, and communicating with me. That's all a bit strange. <laughs> and it was easy. And she left the room, and uh, my friend looked at me, and Who's that? Oh, that's my sister. Oh. I said, well, she's nice. She said, oh, do you like her? I said, yeah. And then, you know, she's a very, very nice girl. He, he said, he said to me, he said, uh, do you fancy having a date with her? I can arrange it if you want. So the following weekend, he phoned me, he phoned up his sister and phoned me up when we were meeting the following weekend for supper. Three months later, we were engaged. Twelve months later, we were married. I had a purpose and I had a meaning now to really sort myself out. 
I did find some work, I found some casual work, but this speck of light now is beginning to grow, and this light beginning to come in the tunnel. Things are still troublesome, burdensome. The medication begins to lessen, I become more to my senses again. And that stirring within begins to rise again of despair and dis disillusionment and the search for meaning. I begin to revisit the yoga, the meditation book, and I start going to classes. And I start attending and listening to speakers and teachers. And I come across a few important religious speakers and I listen to them and the search begins again. But I come to an important understanding. Just after we got married, we, we moved to a small village, we got a small semi-detached bungalow and in the village there was a church, uh, Anglican church, a church in Wales and I had this awakening. And the awakening was this. It's a little escape in some ways, but why do I have to search the other side of the world? Why do I have to go to these? Why do I have to go to Hinduism, to Buddhism, when there's answers on my own doorstep? They're not obvious answers, but there must be something within on my own doorstep and in my own local tradition. So I start going to church. I start going to the church in Wales. And so it's beginning to come home again. Beginning to return back to my roots. Roots again. And I get interested, even to the point now with my church. Because of my religious delusions, which I've suffered from, and my religious mania, I signed up to study theology. I signed up to study part-time theology and I go back and forth to Lampeter College, St. David's College, Lampeter, and I end up getting a diploma in theology. Things are moving on. I, I apply for priesthood training. I feel there's a vocation emerging here. I apply for priesthood training in the Church of Wales. I go through two years of selection. I end up going to Chester cathedral for my final interviews to train as a priest. Have anybody been through that? It's a very challenging, stressful time. You, you, you're there for sort of two and a half days under the microscope and goldfish bowl and at the end of that they said to me, you've done very well but psychologically we don't think you're ready for this, you don't think because of all your problems and your troubles you're not ready for this. But we're not going to close the door fully upon you. We're going to leave that door half ajar. And there's an opportunity for you to return if you think. Uh, we'll give it some time. So that happened also. And I returned home, this was 1995, and I returned back home to Pembrokeshire from Chester Cathedral. And about a week or two later, after I came back from Cathedral, 
My wife looked at me and smiled after seven years of trying to have a child. She said, we're pregnant. She's pregnant. Uh, I think, oh, that changes everything now. I had a month of significant things happening. Well, two months of significant things happening. The priest was, uh, my wife becoming pregnant. And then I see an advert in the church magazine Christian Meditation Retreat Weekend at St. Non's Retreat House St. David's uh, led by Ivor Lewis uh, organised by Ivor Lewis uh, he's passed on like Ivor is now but he knew Ivor yeah. so Ivor arranged, arranged the week weekend down at St. Non's in 1995 and we had a charismatic Catholic priest came, come down uh, I don't, well, I had rumours about him afterwards, but John, John Winningfield was, was his name, and I must say, he really got through to me. He was, he was a Cockney Catholic priest, a real character, <laughs> colourful character, and uh, what he said that weekend made so much sense. And from that moment forward, I followed a path in discipline of Christian Christian meditation today. I think we'll have a break. <laughs> 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 Good. So you can catch up with anything. So I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a cup or anything. Yeah.